I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series, brought to you today by Freightstar. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Freightstar for sponsoring today's episode. Transporting heavy machinery doesn't have to be a hassle. Freightstar makes it easy with an online marketplace that connects you for free with a trusted network of professional brokers and carriers. Find out more at Freightstar.com. That's F-R, numeral eight, S-T-A-R, dot com. Every no-till system is different, a fact that becomes really clear at every gathering of the annual National No-Tillage Conference, where no-tillers come together to learn about new practices and share ideas and experiences with one another. At the 2020 National No-Tillage Conference, we asked a few no-tillers who didn't know one another to meet up and swap stories and perspectives on their operations. Hailing from West Central Illinois, Southern Indiana, and Western Kentucky, the three no-tillers are all corn and soybean growers, but they have distinctly different approaches to their no-till operations. In this podcast, we'll hear from veteran no-tiller Mark Chapman, who systematically refines his operation with efficiency as one of his main drivers. Andrew Rushell, who is a speaker at the conference, says his system is guided by his profitable use of soil building cover crops. Our third guest is Alan Smock, who runs a demonstration farm on a university campus and is always looking for ways to prevent further erosion and nutrient loss on the rolling ground. To kick things off, here's our first guest, Mark Chapman of Bowling Green, Kentucky. Mark Chapman from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Thumbnail of uh, what our farm is, it's all, all crops, uh, corn, soybeans, and wheat. I'll just say corn, wheat, and soybeans because that's the order of the rotation, but it's, it's three crops in two years. And what's your acreage? 1,750 tillable acres with half of that being double crop, so we'll harvest 2,500 plus a year. And in our situation, we work, one of the things I try to be extremely efficient in is labor. It's me and one guy. And we hire two truck drivers during the corn harvest and one the other time of the year. So it's it's me and one person, my wife keeping me fed <laughs> in the tractor. So and we do have good markets. Uh, you know, the co-op I'm a member of uh, owns an ethanol plant, uh, has a contract with Jack Daniels, has a contract with Hills Pet Food. So we have good local and, and you know, and a couple of huge uh, hog operations that want more corn. So we, we've got also a barge terminal for beans. So it, it makes us, you know, that's where I can sell what I'm raising. The wheat, um, there's also a, uh, a flour company that buys high quality wheat in the area. So even if I'm not selling directly there, the co-op I'm a member of sells anything 58 pound test weight and higher, everything is going to the seniors. Next, we'll hear from Alan Smock of Jasper, Indiana. Longtime readers of No-Till Farmer may remember Alan's brother, Stan, who wrote for the publication for a number of years and was known as the No-Till Answer Man. Alan Smock, I live in, in Jasper, Indiana, in Dubois County. Um, our, fa- our family farm, where I grew up, is in Bartholomew County, which is in, on the north end of Bartholomew County. We farmed it, my, my brother began farming it in the late 70s and uh, started no-till very shortly after that. So I, the property has been in no-till really since the late 70s or early 80s. And within the last uh, four or five years, as I've become more, kind of come back and be more involved in it, uh, we've gotten back into the other area that I'm involved in is with the Dubois County Saltwater Conservation District. Uh, became a, a supervisor in 2012 and we got involved with a, a partnership between the, the Saltwater Conservation District and the local junior college. Uh, the college had about 130-acre campus and about 45, 50 acres of this crop land. And they'd been renting it out to a local local farmer, and, and they didn't really know what was going on with it. It wasn't being managed well, and they weren't making much money off of it. So they said, we'd like to be able to utilize the, the campus for something that's you know worthwhile from an educational point of view. So after a lot of discussion and... Uh, meetings with a whole bunch of people in the state. Uh, we formed what was called the Land Stewardship Initiative, which is a partnership between, like I said, the Duke of the Sonar Conservation District and the, and the university. 
And about the same time, uh, there was a conservation cropping system initiative that started within the state, and it was managed by the uh, Indian Association of Small Water Conservation Districts. And so they provided some funding, at least initially, to help us get started. And we've been operating, well, the, the Land Stewardship Initiative is, is the uh, soil health outreach part of the, of the district's plan, uh, annual plan. And uh, so the intent is that it's a demonstration site. We use technology and techniques that uh, precision ag as much as possible. And uh, no-till no with cover crop. And we have a tilled strip right in the middle of one of our big fields, so we got a comparison that we can that we use every year. Finally, here's Andrew Rushell of Golden, Illinois. My name is Andrew Rushell. I'm from Golden, Illinois, which is up by Quincy, uh, west central side of the state. I farm with my dad, who owns most of the acres, obviously. We do corn and soybeans, looking to add a third crop. Wheat's not very profitable for me because I have a lot of uh, issues with grain quality with high humidity. Um, and I really don't want to use two shots of fungicide, which is what they tell me I have to use. So we're trying to find ways around that. But using a lot of cover crops uh, within even the corn and soybean rotation, I try to get as many as I can. I've had over a hundred different cover crop species and a rotation to, I average around, right around 30. I try to implement as many cover crops as I possibly can. Even within a corn and soybean rotation, we plant green, we harvest green. I interseed in early V stages of corn, looking to interseed into soybeans prior to harvest so that I can combine my soybeans green. Precision placement of cover crops, done a lot of that. I don't know if you can tell, cover crops are my main priority. No-till comes with the cover crops, so it's, I come at it from a different perspective. When I think about tillage, I think about frequency, intensity, and time uh, with tillage. And so a tiny little bit of tillage inside of a really big system is very little frequency, very little, the timing and the intensity is very minuscule. And I think it can still be a tool to be used. So we're learning no-till corn, which has been a challenge. But So I've only been no-tilling the exact same ground we've been no-tilling. I think I'm on like going on to my fourth year. So it's early no-till, but been playing with cover crops for a really long time. So. My grandpa started no-tilling in the 70s. He sold all of his tillage equipment. No-till seven. He went three years and said, oh, no-till doesn't work. So he bought brand new tillage equipment. So he was just starting to get to the point right? where it starts to get right? to, to be worth doing. And then he buys brand new tillage equipment and then he buys a farm. And then the 80s hit. So he kicks dad off the farm and said, I can't afford you. So then dad's kicked off the farm. Grandpa farms for a while. And then he said, you know, a whole other decade later, he makes it through. And he goes, I'm finally making money. He tells my dad, you got to come back. I'm making money. I need your help. I need your help. So he brings dad back to the farm early 90s. And then he gets there and he goes, oh, by the way, we're no-tilling again, but we're doing it in the cover crops. And the 90s were wet for us in our area. They were super wet. So they never got to terminate. And they got, they just had disasters. Well, they kept saying it's disasters because they had cereal rye over their 4440 tractor cab. And now today, that's perfect. I love it. That'd be great. Awesome. I'm doing something right. But they, they didn't know how to manage it. They didn't know what to do. They were freaking out. So they made all the wrong decisions. They just didn't know. So they had three years of crop failure again in the early 90s with cover crops. So you got a bad taste with cover crops, got a bad taste with no tip. So then my grandpa says, hey, you know what? I'm not a huge fan of all these, how things are going. 98 with uh, introducing them to that roundup. Grandpa's like, I'm not gonna pay for that. I'm gonna stay conventional. So conventional meant organics. Organics means doing organic the way that they did it all in the early 70s. Three-way rotation, corn, beans, wheat, red clover, bottom clover under, bottom, Eight times they would go over the, in between the corn rows, five times in between their beans. 
So then in the late 90s and early 2000s, I was a kid walking beans, just like you guys probably were. And so, but that was organics when there was no market. And so they weren't making money. Grandpa retires, grandpa lost the farm. Bad tastes. Dad takes over the farm. He looks at all of his neighbors and say, they're doing tillage. They're doing corn and soybeans. They're using anhydrous ammonia. They're using chemicals. They're making money. They're buying new farms. They're buying new equipment. So dad proceeds to do that from the 2000s, early 2000s on. And so that was the path that dad took. Um, I left the farm. Uh, I was in the military. Then I went to school and I come back. And I come back and I say, Dad, I want to do cover crops and I want to do no-till. He says, no. <laughs> when did you come back? I came back in 2016, but we were, we had a landowner who's a really massive big deer hunter who said that he wanted to have turnips and radishes in his, after his corn to feed as a food plot for his deer. That was in 2003 or four. So we started high boring cover crops and did all that stuff. Flying it in, fly, we used to fly it in. That worked out fine when we had a hurricane mm-hmm. that came through from the south and then dumped a bunch of water mm-hmm. and it worked out great. When you didn't get the hurricane, you didn't get a stand. Right. So when we switched to a high boy system, neighbors got a high boy and we switched to that and we got a perfect stand every year. That's fine. I was in, I just started school in 2012 college and it was drought 2012 where we had radishes just straight radishes still did tillage and planted corn there's 140 bushel corn where he had just everything else that was normal 40 bushel corn there's 100 bushel corn difference solely from three pounds of radishes to the acre before and you know that's way before we knew what we were doing why there's something different there and that's when it sparked my interest, right when I started school. So I went to school in Carbondale, uh, Southern Illinois. That was back in Mike Plummer's heyday. So I literally went to school. Perfect storm. Yeah. I went to school and all I did was chase Mike Plummer around the state <laughs> because he was right down there. Terry Taylor, Junior Upton, all these guys, and I would just sit there and I learned from them. And I said, these boys are doing it all down here. I can do it up there. My ground's 10 times better. I take it all, try to take it all back home, go through all the hurdles and management of learning how that worked down there. It sure as heck don't work up here. Um, fumbled through a lot of that stuff early with dad. I got to be able to help. We made some different mixes and stuff and tried some stuff while I was still in college. So I had a lot of base work and groundwork. 2016, I graduated from college, moved home, bought a farm. So the beauty of having my own farm is I can do whatever the heck I want now. My money on the line, not dad's. So we no-till beans into green cereal rye. And it worked perfect. And so we've just done that we went from 80 acres that I had to every acre after that one time. That was just no brainer. That was easy. So then I planted corn the following year and I said, dad, I'm interceding my corn at V3, V4, V5. And he goes, mm, that's dumb. That's weeds. So I had a cover crop, planted my corn, no-tilled my corn to a cover crop, V uh, interceded it. Put half the amount of nitrogen, no P, no K, no S, planted it. Worked out amazing. We've done that on every single one of my acres ever since. Uh, we went, we're we just scaling everything up as fast as I can possibly do it. Uh, so it sounds very fast and very soon and very early. But I mean, we're in the infancy stages of this. My soil is plates right like platelets it, there's when it rains an inch and a half my water's going down 
stream. Really? And then we're turning around and praying for rain two, every two weeks. I, and we need the rain, we need the rain. And dad used to say, oh, that's a million dollar rain. That's a million dollar rain, you know, during pollination, during all that. Oh, it's too hot and dry. Always complained about the weather. Always complained about it. We don't complain about the weather anymore because we took this platy soil and now you go and you dig into it and it just falls apart, right? Like, So it's, it's a heavier clay content. Uh, yeah. Clay loam. Uh, silk clay loam, clay loams. I have, see, we farm everything. I have white timber dirt that used to be at a coal mine mm-hmm. that doesn't. And then we have the flattest, blackest dirt ground there is, right? And we farm everything in between. So I have only no-till and I have only planted green and I have only interceded and I have only cut P, K, and N way down. And my yields have sustained. Am I mineralizing? I don't know. So are you soil testing to monitor? Yeah, so changes? I, when I came home, I went back and looked at all the soil tests that my dad and my grandpa had taken over the last 30 years that they farmed it. It's a century farm for us. Like um, Our family's owned it for 100 years. Their levels never really changed over 30 years of soil testing. And I go, so you add all this stuff, but you don't change your soil you've never fixed your soils in 30 years you're always like you need a perfect soil test and uh like well the crop removes it okay so i say let's just not add any let's see what happens and then so we do it for three years i go out there in season and i pull a soil sample and i pull a haney and I pull PFLAs, and I pull Cornells, and I pull all these soil samples. And what am I doing? Am I going to screw up royally? Is this working? What is going on? Send it all off to these labs. And by golly, my P and K goes way up. My N goes up. Why? Because the soil biology is doing it all. So again, I go back to what's the most important thing? the cover crop, the cover crop with the large diversity of cover crops, a large diversity of species of cover crops that produce different root exudates, feed different soil biology. I can keep that soil biology in my soil and they are there to aid my cash crop while I'm growing a cash crop. So do you think maybe, uh, I'm throwing this out as a hypothesis, Because I'm of the opinion that if you're hauling off the field yep. long enough, you know, yep. you're still hauling PK off the field, you know, right. you take off 250 bushel corn or whatever uh, you're making. Is are, the, are your cover crops bringing up stored long-term deep nutrients and they're getting cycled up to where they're more usable? So, Mark, I so, can't tell you that. I'm not a soil scientist and I don't know that. I think that we have been fed a bunch of lines that we believe that there is only X amount of dollars in a bank account, right? And so if we input money into the bank account and then we remove the money, we keep taking that balance up and down. I think that we've been fed that. But when we soil sample, we only soil sample six inches. My corn crop goes way deeper than six inches. My cover crop goes deeper than six inches. So we're not we're not comparing apples to apples, I guess, in my opinion. I looked at how much money that my dad was spending per acre, and he's like, oh, yeah, we're making like 50 to $100 an acre profit. So uh, 220 bushel corn times, eight do- uh, times $4 is $880. You spend about $785 to $800 to put that crop in. I hate that margin. I'm not about that game. So I s- said, how low can I go? And when we start cutting and I start cutting and I start cutting and I realize I'm putting the crop in for $350 or $400 and I'm getting 200 bushel corn, I'll take that 20, 30 bushel hit at $4 corn because I'm cutting so much. And by cutting so much, my return on investment is so much higher. And I don't need to farm as many acres 
I'm putting less wear and tear on equipment. And I get to spend a tiny bit more time with my family. So do those figures include your costs for the cover crop? Yes. Yes. End of the year total, this is what the tax is. If you're not is. putting on any P and K, that's a huge right? chunk right there. And yeah. then okay. switching from a triple stack corn down to a double pro, that can be a big change. You know, somebody, I don't have a non-GMO market and I'd love to have a non-GMO market. But then I look at my cost, my savings on my chemical. I put, my chemical cost cost me $14 an acre on corn. So I can't make that up with go, switching to a non-GMO. How does that compare to average? Uh, so 14, 14 an acre anywhere is dirt cheap. Oh. But I build my system of cover crops to mitigate weather. Okay. So it can go dry and I'm fine. It can go wet and I'm fine. Where's my crop failures at? If I get a crop failure, sweet, I'll take prevent from it. I'll buy some cows, I'll graze it, I'll increase the amount of liquid carbon in my fields, I'll sell the cows and then I'll turn around and roll a crepper down and plant a beautiful stand of water right into it. Thanks for the free year. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, you're not afraid to pivot, obviously. They're, you're really flexible. I don't have a plan A, ever. Mm. I'm always shooting from the hip, uh -huh. going in and flying. Yeah. And that doesn't work for everybody. No. <laughs> nope. So you're, let's hear about you. I mean, you're saying you're the well, opposite. You're, you're, I have a plan. You have a system. I have a system in life. I used to do a lot of public speaking when I was young. And because uh, I was an FFA, state FFA president, and, oh, okay. and several, and then some things after that where I did a lot of public speaking. Uh, I'm not a good prepared public speaker and word for word. I think an outline, but for me to be, uh, I like off the cuff things, but I'm not necessarily the best off the cuff if I don't have preparation ahead of time. Yeah. So, and you know, when I coach basketball, I wanted a game plan because to me, if you got a game plan, and you know what your goals are, then when you encounter something that's off of that, you're not having to focus on the plan. It's ingrained, it's set, mm -hmm. and you can and you can respond and prompt to issue yeah. from the hip. But you but you're shooting from the hip with knowledge instead of yes. instead of grabbing at straws. We'll get back to Mark, Allen, and Andrew in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, FreightSar, for supporting today's episode. Transporting heavy machinery doesn't have to be a hassle. FreightStar makes it easy with an online marketplace that connects you for free with a trusted network of professional brokers and carriers. Find out more at FreightStar.com. That's F-R numeral 8 S-T-A-R.com. Now let's get back to Mark Chapman, Alan Smock, and Andrew Rushell as they discuss cover crops as well as some observations about no-till they picked up at the conference. As I mentioned, you know, 90% of our acres are a three crop and two year rotation. I tell people that I have a cash cover crop. Yep. That's, that's wheat. Yep. Uh, uh -huh. uh, wheat is a, I planted my first cereal ride this year, 35 acres. <laughs> <laughs> but I just don't have hardly any ground. When we, when we harvest double crop beans, they're coming off. Um, we're usually done by November 10th, but it's late enough, it's hard to get enough growth for the no-till corn when I'm going to have to kill it in the spring. The only be, thing I will say is that I yeah. plant cover crops all the way into past Thanksgiving and I'm north of you. And, and that's one of the things I've kind of picked up at the conference is trying to pick up some things to try. I, I've got a really good friend who's uh, about half my age and uh, we actually, the first time I ever came to this conference was, he, he found out about it and said, hey, let's go. And we did. This is the first time we ever met face to face. We'd only talked over the phone and met over the internet because we were both wanting to build a no-till planter, not from scratch. It was a Kinsey planter, but we were we were ordering them as stripped down as we could, and we were adding a lot of other things on it. And I guess found each other on Ag Talk and realized that we were asking a lot of the same questions. So then we ended up swapping phone numbers, and he's been trying to do a bunch of stuff with cereal rye to plant corn into uh -huh. and and all of his strips it kill it early kill it late it's not working for him at all so but oh, really? okay. um, 
and it's the whole nitrogen issue. Yeah. He's, getting, he's getting burned with, with the nitrogen issue. We're further south, so we've got we got a lot of things going for us. It's with no-till, we built organic matter, and then mine is actually backed off. And what is it backed oh. off? My note, my organic oh. matter is actually backed off. It really? Fell. And even under, you know, you can see it back off when you would have two years like 2012 or where you're not building a lot of uh, biomass because of a drought. But, yeah. But it backed off even in good years. And it, and it kind of backed off and flattened out. So we went from one to one and a half percent organic matter up to two and a half to three and a half. And now I'm mostly between two and two and a half. But I think... Uh, the reason it's backed off is uh, the soil uh, biology has gotten ramped up and we have <clears throat> we don't have harsh enough winters to shut it down so we get a lot of degradation for a lot longer period of time you know i read about guys in illinois fighting uh <clears throat> planting in the corn stalks our corn stalks you know by the time we get in the spring uh there's not much left mm -hmm. Uh, we can we can have a 90 plus bushel of wheat crop followed by a 50 to 60 bushel double crop beans have a nice mat in the fall and when I come in in April and start no-tilling corn you know it's it's, it's so your soil it's, biology is starving perhaps but it, I mean we just we got a whole lot more heat mm -hmm. uh, yep. and we got plenty of moisture yeah. and we got it year round and so um, I do have, I have really good cover when I plant corn, but it's, I've noticed and it's my earthworm populations come up, you know. Hey, uh, residue disappears even faster. Right. So I, I don't consider that necessarily a total negative. Uh, and, but with wheat in the rotation, like where I started, we started no-tilling wheat. Um, because we're planting wheat in the corn stalks, that, and it's after corn harvest, and within a month after corn harvest, uh, that can be more of a challenge getting wheat seeded deep enough that you don't get a lot of heaving and have weaker plants that don't yield as well. Do you well. have fusarium issues with your wheat? Spray um, fungicides? What? Yeah, but Two, twice? Uh, only twice if there's a stripe rust. Okay. Scare. So once, once, is, once is set up, already planned, the second one is on standby. The, the, yeah, the, the planned application is for head scab yep. and septoria and yep. rust at heading. Fusarium, right. Uh, uh, What's a March, a March application, you know, usually if stripe shows up, it's going to be last two weeks of March, first few days of April. What's nitrogen plan on corn, the corn to wheat? Um, I'm putting on, well, I'm variable rating fertilizer based on crop removal. Okay. This is where I've gotten to on most acres. So in the fall, I'm just using what's in the DAP that's going on okay. before the wheat crop for yep. the fall nitrogen. Usually it's going to be 25 to 30 units. Uh, um, wheat, uh, I'm going to put down based on how thick the wheat is, how it's overwintered, you know, <clears throat> what, it, what it looks like uh, in February. We're going to go in and put on usually 45 to 50, 51 units max in the first shot, we usually get say 45 units. Um, then come back and at peak six with the balance of the nitrogen. I have a green seeker on my sprayers, so I'm variable rating nitrogen on wheat. So I don't know if you're familiar with green seeker or not. Can you remind us? I, I've read about it, but tell us how it works. Um, green seeker is, uh, uh, gives you NDVI um, it's a Trimble product, and, but basically you're bouncing uh, red and your infrared light off of a crop canopy, and the data you get back is, is a measure of the chlorophyll level in the plant. So what you do in uh, your first application of nitrogen, uh, we're flat rating everything, but, but by variety and by any significant difference in a field or planting date, uh, where the wheat's significantly different, you want a nitrogen-rich strip in that spot. Nitrogen-rich strip is 100 feet long, width of the boom. Uh, and you want it on good ground. And basically, I'm gonna put on about 165 to 170 units of nitrogen, one shot in February on that on that wheat. <clears throat> and, and the premise is this, is that when you come to feet six, that enriched strip uh, from the February application, that wheat is 
dark, dark green. Yeah. And the rest of the field, of course, is starting to get needy. Uh, you read with your sensors, there's six sensors on the boom. I read it and I take average, it's, I get a high, low, and average. Um, <laughs> generally, I'm applying based on the average, but I read that enriched strip and then I'm using uh, uh, algorithms from the University of Kentucky developed by Dr. Lloyd Murdoch and Phil Needham. They did a number of years research and they, they kind of were able to, once they dialed it in after maybe two or three years in the study, replicated it for each year after that and it kept coming back with the same numbers. So it's, it's held pretty true, but you read that enriched strip and then you program the algorithm into the monitor for the green seeker and, and then you're going to drive the field and it's going to change the rate. So mm -hmm. okay. there's still some agronomic guessing because there's things that can go wrong in an enriched strip. That's one of the things I've learned a lot mm -hmm. is where to put that. But you want it on really good ground, mm -hmm. it's well drained, so you don't have, you know, for some reason, some amount of uh, abundant nitrogen loss. But that way you can get that reading and, and the assumption is that wheat could not possibly want any nitrogen. So when you're looking at other places in the field, you're comparing it to a totally healthy wheat plant mm -hmm. for nitrogen. And it's okay. adjusting according to that. Okay. And, and uh, you can set parameters in. Let's say you hit a spot where the wheat got thin because water stood on it. Well, obviously the green seeker is going to say, hey, we need to go to max rate here. And you're, but you know that's not true. So you can program your algorithm so that uh, when your NDVI uh, drops, um, that uh, at some point you just you, st you actually start reducing the rate again okay. instead of increasing the rate. Oh, okay. um, but usually you want to have kind of a after reading your enriched strip, and then you drive a little bit in the field to kind of get a ballpark idea of okay, what might my field average be? And I've taken off and run a little bit and said, no, what it's actually doing in the field is not where I need to be. And I used to feel need them to, I use it texting the column and say, what are you, what are you seeing in the enriched strips? Because even though he's a few counties away, it's amazing how similar it is uh, in, what, in what we'll see. So it's given me a pretty wide range. We had some freeze damage uh, two years ago. It ended up leaving my uh, my field average total nitrogen first and second application around 108 pounds to the acre, which on no-till would be at least 10 to 15 pounds lower than normal. But it worked well. The wheat I had I had people stopping and asking me, you know, hey, all of our wheat fell down this year. How much nitrogen do you use on yours? Mm. I said 108 pounds, and, and one neighbor said, I used 108 pound field average. Well, mine was placed right. more appropriately, you know, and I was backing off in areas where this was going on. But the freeze damage, even if it didn't kill the head, gave some steam damage, and that's why standability was tough. This year, I had a lot of fields averaging 132. On most years that we put 132 units on in the spring, uh, it's going to be as flat as this table. You know, it, it couldn't handle that, but because we had so much water and had lost so much of that early shot, okay. uh, the wheat was more hungry. And in my wheat stood it. I'm not using Palisade, so that's saving 12 to, I think it was down to maybe 12 bucks an acre this year when it came out, it's 15 to 18 bucks an acre. What's Palisade? It's a it's a, uh, a growth regulator, so it shortens the wheat, okay. stiffens okay. the straw, okay. and you can push. So most people that are using are pushing right. their nitrogen right. rates. Right. Yeah. And, and so it keeps your wheat from lodging. Hey, well, how much money do you make off wheat? That's one of the price. I, <laughs> let, me, let me pencil it out. It's, so you said $108, it's a, $108, and, $108 bushel an acre? You said 108 no, I said, nitrogen. Uh, 100, 108 units of nitrogen. What's your yield, 100. roughly? So this year was 90. Uh, it's been over 100 farm average. Uh, 100 I'm, farm average. Okay. I'm, I'm, dis I'm disappointed with anything. If you, if you make 85 bushel wheat, where we are disappointed. There's no, no it's just it's just okay. <laughs> okay. You don't get excited. Okay. You know, if it's not over ninety, you don't get so excited. So five dollars and fifty cents average, right? Yeah, that's in the ballpark. How much did you spend for that? All so I hear is a hundred bush hundred pounds of nitrogen. That's a lot. No, I, we would average most years hundred and twenty units. That's more than I put on my corn. Yeah, but 
the wheat takes more per bushel. You're, you're talking about a higher, much higher protein. So you've got a. Yeah, you also have a lot better test weight. You have better. You have a lot of things down there that I don't have. Now we don't grow. See, here's much better here's, a, here's another big difference between you and me, is you're going to have more organic matter releasing nitrogen than I have. You know, with a green seeker, my highest nitrogen rates are going to be on my eroded hills, mm-hmm. and and so you've really got to. Uh, and that's in 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 most of the big yield gain wheat, unlike corn. Uh, in corn, the variable rate uh, is I'm seeing the taking advantage of the sweet spots in the field and really pushing those yields. If we just the other way around, my field averages are coming up because my poor ground is coming up because when we were flat rating everything, that was actually being starved for nitrogen. It's lower organic matter, so you got less nitrogen release. It's higher in clay because it, you got more uh, subsoil mixed in, but the higher clay means it doesn't uh, perk as well and water doesn't have to be in those micropores hardly at all before you're getting denitrification. So, uh, you know, we're wet enough through the winter and, and then in the spring many times that those areas are going to call for a lot of nitrogen and, and we'll see a yield bump. The, the studies at UK, they were, you know, the, over the average of it, they were showing four to five bushel yield benefit over a consultant going in the field with a green seeker handheld and picking a rate to flat rate the field. So the variable rate nitrogen, some years you're using less total mm-hmm. nitrogen than a consultant would have recommended, some years more. Um, but it's 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 highly variable. So I'll, I'll have areas on that second shot that I'm only putting on like seven gallons uh, uh, of 32 in the in other areas they're getting like 23 gallons of 32. but it's 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 re- and, and the interesting thing is too when you're driving over that field uh there are times i'm looking at that that monitor changing rates and i physically can't see a difference in the color of the wheat now the extremes it's obvious you know you're going to be plus wheat you know and it's back and wait it's hot but there's times it's it's changing three to five gallons to the acre That's a lot. and 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 i'm looking at the wheat and i'm not seeing it so it's yeah. obviously seeing things i can't see yeah. so That's i've been super choice. happy because it's, it's enabled me to push nitrogen rates to maximize uh you know the, the response and yet keep the wheat standing you know if you push nitrogen the wheat goes down it, it not only hurts you in your wheat yield but it's killing your double crop yields because mm-hmm. you've got to plant through all that stuff and, and for us, that's why, you know, I wouldn't be raised, you asked me about how profitable is the wheat. If I figure all my expenses against the wheat, then it's not very profitable, but I've got to divide it into two crops. So all my P and K that I figured in go into the wheat, you know, I've got to put something of that against the soybean crop because we're not fertilizing the soybeans. We're just going in and planting. Let's pivot a little bit. I'm curious what you guys have heard in the last couple of days at the conference that has been intriguing. In the past couple of days, there's been two things that have been talked about uh-huh. that seem to be um, on each end of the teeter topic. Okay, I love it. One speaker talked about how are we going to feed a world with 11 billion people in it yeah. without more food. Bob's sake. And, and there's been a couple of other speakers that have talked about uh, kind of poo-pooing low prices because we have oversupply. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to be raising as much food. Yes, and I just thought, right, right, right. I thought, and, and I know why each is seeing they're they're looking at two different things, yeah. but um, how that's going to play out over the course of time is going to be interesting mm-hmm. because it it could be some ugly forces that push it one way or another. I mean, you know, if if we move to being only focusing on environmental issues. Mm-hmm and something happens where rural food supply is critical, you know, Americans have not lived through starvation. Uh, and, you know, the kind of government instability you get with those type crises. Yeah. And, and I just thought it was kind of interesting to have speakers, and I'm yeah. not throwing out any answers, but how do you bring both together? And I think right now uh, there is a lot of division because people see those as exclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the world's an interesting place right now. It's not supply and demand. It's 
just virtually everything's political at this point, it seems like. I think one of the biggest things we're fighting is uh, is major cultural value shifts. Mm -hmm. And and, and here's one example. When I started farming in 88, I had farms I was able to rent because there were neighbors who came and said, I've been watching how you farm. I'm going to retire. Are you interested in farming my land? Uh In our area now, all of the offspring or heirs don't care whether how you treat the farm. Um, those same farmers would have would have been. I have one that actually I cash rented. I, I offered a shares option, uh, and they wanted cash rent because they were kind of skittish about it. But we wrote into the contract that uh, after two years, they had the option but whether they wanted to continue on the cash lease or, or go to shares. And they chose to go to shares. That would never happen with in this environment. Mm. But uh, most of the heirs only want the highest dollar and they don't care what happens to the land. Yeah. So, you know, is that the same people who are complaining about water quality, uh, food quality, right. all these other things? Do you think it is? In many cases, it is. And so then it's just to the highest bidder only. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of this land is going to people who, you know, in my words, I would say they come in and rape it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they don't mine the soil. They they mine the soil. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't care whether the roads, they don't care whether there's something of value to be passed on. Right. And, and, And so we also, in that culture, you don't also have a value for prime cropland. And that's something there is a limited supply of. So I'm thinking if you're going to feed 11 billion people, you can't do away with your top soils in the world right. and eventually do that at some point right? without pushing yields, Yes. which yes. we don't want to push yields because you're, well, you know, I mean, yeah. that's, that, that's where that argument to me gets ugly. Mm-hmm. So if you want, what I would say is, okay, if you want that type of agriculture, uh, that's more long-term, sustainable, and conservative, then you need to think about your part in that when yeah. you're talking about urban sprawl or your management of the land too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the county I live in is highly driven by uh, the uh, development crowd. That's who is in with the local political group. That's the people who are in politics. A lot of them came from, uh, you know, realtors, uh, you know the attorneys for the real. I mean that's that's where the power is, and so there's no, there's a total disregard for the kind of you know quality land we have and managing the growth. I'm afraid it's going to take some type of crisis to push some reality into making the kind of changes we need to make. You know, an old saying: until the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same uh-huh. or until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change people remain the same yeah, yeah. you know uh, just and just thinking about the farm business the thing that i've been involved in for the last seven or eight years is how do we change the way we do business and how do we do how do we change farming yeah to be more sustainable how do we how do we increase this to yeah. something more like Argentina did? Yeah. Yeah, Argentina right. did it in 40 or 50 years, you know, 93 percent adoption. Of, right. of, and we've been at this for how long? You know, yeah. and we're depending on who you look at, 10 to 15 percent yeah. you know, that are adopting close to being reasonable practices. Yeah. And I have great concerns about that. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we run the risk of we've been at we've been degrading the soil now for about seventy years, something sixty or seventy years. And I went, there's certainly improvements being made, but it's so slow. And some people have been doing it for thirty years, you know. And but you know, I you know, I've seen what happened in the Chesapeake Bay area, you yeah. know, the, all the, the regulation associated with that, the same thing with the Lake Erie yeah. area where they and it's just throwing you know, throwing money at stuff. Yeah, and that doesn't make any sense. But they have a much higher adoption rate. It's mandated. When you check box because you have to, do you so do you, it correctly? 
I don't know. Are you saying that it's not being done correctly? It's an improvement over where it was. The other question is, are they seeing the gains that they wanted to see from it? The end result, I mean, as far as whatever's running out of the pipe, yeah, I think for the most part, they're, they're seeing the benefits. But okay. the cost associated with that and the buy-in of the producers is, yeah. you pay me, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I had seen a study recently uh, where the phosphorus levels in Lake Erie were higher this year really? than okay. they have been for quite a while. Oh, it was the weather. It was the weather, but, 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 but if we've been spending all this money to make these improvements, shouldn't it be more resilient? Well, it's not going to happen in a, I mean, no, I know. and you're right this year because of all the rain, but that phosphorus and the nitrogen are still in there. They're still there. Right. And if we get, if we continue to have these weather patterns, like people are saying, does that mean we're going to continue on that? You know, who knows how bad it would have been, but it, yeah, I think yeah. it's better than it might have That's been. A good point. But, uh, That's a good is point. It, There's an interesting book that was written, uh, I'm going to say 15, 20 years ago. I could be off by 10 years easily. The name of the book is Why We Drink Beer. And, and basically, uh, there used to be vineyards in Northern Europe. The mini ice age wiped them out really? and they had to start raising cereals and because most of our population comes from northern europe as opposed to southern europe what they brought over was beer instead of wine and that's why americans drink beer so interesting all right so was there anything at the conference so far that has been interesting intriguing thought-provoking the Venezuela thing, I thought, was yeah. the option of cover crop. Oh, okay. No yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, was, that, that was striking to me. And the, in the, I, I, I sat next to Barry Fisher, and I said, I elbowed him, and I said, why is that? And, uh, and his perspective was that there are three things. One is that uh, Venezuela really didn't have any kind of production agriculture system prior to the 70s. And so they didn't have any history oh. of growing crops they had you know they all pastures and the other is that uh, the government never was involved from a subsidy point of view so they had no no there was no safety net out there for, for the for the farmers so everything was you made it or you didn't yeah and then the other thing the third was that there was no big manufacturing base of equipment and so there wasn't the availability of discs uh, and big tractors and so on. So, oh, okay. So they, you went they had to do something to conserve labor. You had to, you had to conserve labor and conserve money. And I've heard that from Hans Koch also. And oh. if you look at other people, he said any, any country that has had subsidies, such as most in you know, all the European countries, all those places are still involved in tillage. They pile on Germany, you know. Mm. And, uh, and so. That was, I thought, very interesting. And we've got all this baggage that we're dragging along, you know. You know, you listen to us, and we, you know, sure you say, well, you guys are just thinking about the past. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's just true. But you've learned from the past. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting dragging that baggage along, as well as the whole supporting, you know, the, the whole the whole industry, support industry of agriculture is just so huge. You know, I went to a, a farm meeting it's been four or five years ago and it was the it was the national association of, of conservation districts when it was held in annapolis and there was a an article that came out in the furrow magazine that talked about jill clapperton was on the cover of the, of the magazine and, and the whole thing was dedicated to uh discussion of benefits of soil health all the neat things that, that were going to happen as associated with that and the edit and and there was a guy at a, at a roundtable discussion from John Deere and I cornered him after the discussion because he was you know raw raw you know, as far as I said you know this is really great that, that, that John Deere sponsored this and behind this effort he said whoa that's a separate community that's a separate organization that, that, that publishes the furrow that does not represent Think the opinions of John Deere. It doesn't surprise me, but, you know, because it was advocating less iron, basically. Yeah. My wife was a uh, uh, got her master's in history, it was oh. early American history, uh-huh. and she said actually a lot of the early settlers of the prairies almost starved to death oh, until, yeah. the, until the mobile plow oh, came along. No kidding. Because, oh, absolutely. Because the sod was so heavy, they couldn't oh, do anything to grow in it. Oh. Yeah. 
and, and they couldn't deal with it. And so when the moldboard plow came mm -hmm. along, it helped stave off starvation. Uh -huh. So I mean, that's a side. Absolutely but, true. But I say most people wouldn't know mm -hmm. historically, you know, that moldboard plow is a terrible thing. Well, to them, it was a lifesaver. They were yeah. starving to death yeah. until they learned how to actually survive in that environment. Uh -huh. But then look what happened to that environment in the 30s. Right. You know, mm -hmm. Due to poor management practices. Mm -hmm. But that's absolutely true. You know, and I, I, I'm into old farm equipment and you know, there's a lot of, you used to have plowing contests and all kinds of stuff. You know, and they talk about the big prairie tractors that were used. And they went from farm to farm to farm with great big plows. It's interesting that you say that. If you look back at George Washington, and his conversations and letters with uh, Thomas Jefferson, they were talking about in the late 1700s uh -huh. that they didn't see how the current practices would sustain agriculture over the next 30 years. Mm. And that was in the 1700s. Wow. But they weren't dealing with the prairie. They were not. They were they... already dealing with a degregated soil that they had degregated yeah. over the course yeah. of a hundred and what 50 oh, years not even in some and, and of course topsoils there are much thinner too so mm -hmm. they saw it quicker and it you look at the crop the amount of crops the diversity that george washington grew, it's interesting how did we get so far away from it the markets determined. both of those men were very i mean they were agriculturalists first they were farmers first. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Mark Chapman, Alan Smock, and Andrew Russell for sharing their no-till stories and experiences at the National No-Tillage Conference. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Freightstar, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.